Trinity Baptist Church. Once I was confused, seeing the great things people were doing all around me and wondering how I would measure up, striving to be the best and resting in the things that I had done. I was willing to hide behind accomplishments and pretend that I had it all together, thinking that one day I would measure up to God. Then Jesus found me, and he showed me that even my righteous deeds were like filthy rags, and that it is by grace that I could experience true joy. Today, I know that it is his work that counts and not mine. He is showing me his greatness in the small things all around us, and while he loves me just as I am, he loves me too much to keep me the way that I am. Once Satan planted lies in my heart, and I let him fester there until I was hopeless. I was trapped in an unhealthy thought life, believing I was constantly letting other people down and letting God down. I thought my existence here on earth was doing more harm to Christ's message than good. I became so despondent that I thought I'd do God a favor and attempt to join him in heaven before he wanted me there. Then Jesus found me, and he set me free from the lies that were planted in my heart. Today, I lean on God's truth and reject Satan's lies. When Satan says, you're not talented enough, I say, lie. God says, you are made in my image, and you are perfectly and wonderfully made. When Satan says, your marriage is as good as it can get, so get out, I say, lie. (laughs) God says, I began a good work in you, and I will be faithful to complete it. When Satan says, you're letting God down, I say, lie. (laughs) God says, you are my child. I forgive you, and I love you. I am John Harrison. And I am Christy Harrison. And and we we are are new. new. Amen. So we're going to share a scripture today from Song of Songs. This is chapter 7, verses 6 through 13. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if their pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at the door is every delicacy both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, thanks, Mr. and Mrs. Harrison. That was a great job. I think we uh, need to turn the air conditioning up a little bit. Uh, John, you, uh, you have a beautiful wife. And uh, you're not so shabby yourself. 
this sermon won't be about the Harrisons as, uh, as attractive as they are. And uh, we aren't going to be dealing with my sexuality or, or yours uh, or any other individuals here today. Uh, we're actually going to be focusing on Christ and his relationship with the church. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, it's a privilege to be uh, here and, and to come up and sh- to share this time with you. And uh, we are in the middle of a series called Relate. And we're looking at different relationships in the Bible. And we are trying to improve our relationships with the wisdom that we're gaining. But instead of looking at Thomas or Jonathan or um, Joseph uh, or other people like we have in previous weeks, um, I want us to all look at the mirror together and contemplate how we, the church, uh, this body of Christ, can be more attractive to him. Uh, As you may already know, uh, many New Testament teachers draw this connection between a husband and wife and Christ and the church. And that feels awkward to me. Uh, What happens between a married couple? Shouldn't we leave that private? I'm very glad that my 14-year-old is not with us today. (laughs) How awkward for me. How awkward for her. Uh, She's away taking a summer class, so she has been spared. And um, my wife, you know, usually when I'm preparing for a sermon, she'll say, you have to use some more personal anecdotes to make the message more accessible. (laughs) But not this time. She's asked me to go in the opposite direction. Uh, There's not going to be anything from my firsthand experience. Um, But, uh, you know, as much as we want to try to avoid that awkwardness, it's it's there all throughout the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist is the first to use the analogy of Christ being the groom and church being the bride. And Jesus utilizes the same analogy twice. And then the Apostle Paul has it in three of his letters to the churches. And finally, John uses the imagery of a married couple in the book of Revelation to describe Jesus and the New Jerusalem. So we have John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, the disciple John, and Jesus himself all using this same metaphor. And what better scripture to see a married couple close up and personal than the Song of Solomon? So here is a very brief outline of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, In the very first chapter, we see the couple, and they are very desirous of each other. The word I would use to describe them rhymes with corny. (laughs) They, They can hardly wait to be with each other, and their wedding night is not far off, and they speak as their about their current bedroom as being outdoors, which means in public. Now, it was harder for couples to have privacy back then. For example, the car had not yet been invented. (laughs) But this is a good clue. This is a good clue for a couple who isn't married yet to effectively deal with temptation. Always stay out in public. Now, in chapter 3, we see Solomon arriving in a procession of 60 well-armed groomsmen in a limo built especially for this wedding. And he's wearing the crown from his coronation. It's a big celebration. So I'm thinking Charles and Diana, William and Kate, a lot of TV coverage, a lot of tweets. 
Um, and then in chapter 5, some time has now passed since their honeymoon. Solomon comes home to his wife at the end of the day, and he's desiring her. And she has already gone to bed and is not in the mood. She complains about this imposition on her, so he leaves. Then she realizes she's made a mistake, and she goes out running through the city, even asking her friends to help her in the search for her husband. Now, the passage that you heard from chapter 7 describes their reconciliation after this conflict. We caught them in the process of making up. Their intimacy here is actually notably deeper than when they were first married. And that's confirmed by studies today, that intimacy can actually get better as a couple grows older. Now, the last chapter, chapter 8, ends with uh, friends asking for advice for a little sister and how she might someday have a healthy marriage too. So, to review, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is about courtship and then a wedding and then a honeymoon and then fighting about sex, and then make-up sex, and then finally a blog post that could be called Sex in Jerusalem. How to keep your man coming back to you even when he has other options. So the Bible actually has an awful lot to say about sex. There's well over 200 references. Depending on how you count, it's, it's about 300. Um, so beginning right in Genesis, we go from Adam and Eve all the way through these different people, all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are plenty of laws about boundaries. And more stories um, are found uh, in the history books, from the book of Judges all the way through the book of Esther. And then uh, after that, uh, leading up to the exile, and through the exile itself, uh, adultery and prostitution are used as these prophetic metaphors to describe the relationship between Israel and God. Moving into the New Testament, uh, at the very beginning again, we see uh, in the genealogy of Christ clear references to people like Tamar and Judah, Rahab and Solomon, David and Bathsheba. And in Jesus' public ministry, he teaches about lust, he teaches about divorce, and he has some very personal conversations with people who are sleeping with someone else uh, outside of marriage. Uh, After that, in the apostles, we see they are teaching believers across a growing church, Eastern Mediterranean, and there are all these perspectives and cultures and situations that they're talking about. And at the end of the Bible, there's some rather colorful uh, imagery in the book of Revelation uh, to describe Babylon, uh, where John uses some pretty salty words to describe her. Okay, all that said, Song of Solomon may be one of the least looked at books in the Bible of our time. Now, if we were in the Victorian period, when they were so modest, they would cover up the legs of their furniture. (laughs) I would understand this. But in a culture like ours, that seems more odd, doesn't it? Now, the message of today is not the don'ts for us as individuals. It's about the do's for us as the church. But before we go there, um, I'll take a few minutes to address uh, some of the elevated emotions uh, that are running through our church, uh, or at least on Facebook, um, after the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. Now, I'm going to ask all of us, to render 
to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, this sermon series and this message in particular was never meant to be about the Supreme Court or the Constitution. And I know some of you are happy with the decision, and I know others are really disappointed. However, we feel America is changing, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Before the U.S. came to be, there was marriage and there was homosexuality. And if people are still around after the U.S. is gone, there still will be marriage and homosexuality. Now, the Constitution really has nothing to say about marriage and sex, but the Supreme Court had to decide something because our laws are now tied to marriage. And the way they define it, single people don't get the same legal treatment as married people. But all of this, again, is Caesar's. The church can either get stronger with this or we will get weaker. You know, both the church and the U.S. have a very similar mission. Uh, In John 17, Jesus prayed that all believers would be one, as he and the Father are one. And on your money, you can look at it, and it says, E pluberis unum, out of many, one. Now, the problem is that in a group of broken people, we tend to see something else. De unius multos, or out of one, many. This is a challenge for the country, and this is a challenge for the church. Some of you are bothered that the church has a poor history of loving others, including gays. And and that bothers me, too. Others of you are concerned that sexual purity is fading from the church, and, and that bothers me also. But this is not the opportunity for the Greeks to rub salt in the Hebrews' wounds. The church is called to love everyone including gays, because Jesus loves them. So here is our chance to love them well. The church is also called to sexual purity because Jesus called his followers to sexual purity. So here's our chance to do that. Now, some of us will have a hard time loving gays or other people. Who here loves every single person perfectly? Not not me. Others will have a hard time living a sexually pure life. And I wrestle with that. I'm glad that I do have a lot of friends here at Trinity who will call me out if I am not loving others well. And those same people will call me out when I'm missing the mark in my sex life. Jesus did both. We as a church need to do both. So think of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Did Jesus start off by saying, you ignorant Samaritan woman? Of course not. We see in John chapter 4, he first built rapport with her. And only after she was drawn to his words on eternity did he start suggesting a new direction for her life. How about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? Jesus first saves her from being stoned to death. And when she was finally safe, only then did he call her to sexual purity. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, she puts it like this. The Bible is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. 
And that is the gospel. Jesus loves you and gave everything he had to save you. Once you begin following Jesus, start cleaning up your life. We don't say, you're a sinner, listen to me because I'm more righteous or be damned. But unfortunately, that is what people sometimes hear. And they hear it in God's name. They hear, live a life of purity, whether you follow Jesus or not. And coercion is not love. You know that old saying, hate the sin, love the sinner? I think we need to throw it out with the rest of the trash. What we need to say is, hate my own sin and love the sinner. Hating another person's sin is not loving them. So on whose authority am I telling you this? Well, it's on Jesus' authority, actually, because he commanded us, don't bother with that eyelash in that other person's eye. Deal with the baseball bat in your own eye, in my own eye. So regardless about how you feel on gay marriage, I'm glad that you're with us here today. You need to know that Jesus loves you more than anyone here can fathom. Now, if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, then listen to him. He's calling you to a life of holiness. I know gay people who love Jesus, and they're living sexually pure lives, set apart for his purposes. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, when we think about Christ in the church, we need to put the entire body above the individual members, the whole above the different parts. Now, this can be challenging to an individualistic culture like ours. If you're a person who has little interest in sex, I think you're great, and you have a gift. And Paul, <laughs> Paul talks about you in 1 Corinthians 7, and he says that you will be able to focus on your relationship with God better than those of us who are married or going to be married. But I encourage you to stay with us because you may understand other people better and improve your relationships with them. Another reason to care and help for those of us who are not gifted like you, uh, when you are older, other couples' kids will be providing you with food and health care. And they'll be paying into whatever's left of Social Security. <laughs> so, uh, so 1 Corinthians says that uh, for the rest of us, marriage is a consolation prize for those of us who don't want to remain single. So this passage is um, full of principles that are in tension with our culture. If you'd like to turn to the scripture, it is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. I'll read it for us. It's on uh, page 2202. 2202. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his, wife, uh, over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by, perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Abstinence is good. That's what the Bible says. It also says that physical intimacy should only be between a husband and a wife, that it is not cool outside of marriage. For married folks, sex is not just a privilege. It is a duty. A spouse's body is no longer their own, but is yielded, fully given to the other. If one desires the other, the other should not deprive. Some of us lack self-control. Satan will tempt us. And it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This passage offends even good church people. For one thing, Paul says that marriage is first and foremost a sexual relationship. That doesn't mean that marriage is only about sex, but that is what sets it apart. Whatever else a wife and husband do together, live together, travel, serve, parent, these can all be done with another family member or friend without all that physical stuff. Now, there are some good books on lust and self-control. I've read some of them. Uh, I would recommend, among others, Every Man's Battle by Stephen Arterburn. That book helped me to learn to bounce my eyes away from fertile-looking women. It's a good book for single men. It's a good book for married men. But the best thing for those of us who lack self-control and will be tempted, it's not some good Christian book. It is physical intimacy in the context of marriage. That is what Paul is saying. Science says that men are visually stimulated. Uh, Most of us don't need the science to tell us that. We are drawn to markers for health. These markers include bright eyes, nice teeth, good skin, a certain waist-to-hip ratio. The New Testament even talks about hair. The New Testament even talks about hairstyling. Now, it isn't wrong that God designed a man's cerebral cortex to be constantly scanning for these. Jesus teaches, though, that David's adultery didn't only happen when he brought Bathsheba into his palace. It happened beforehand when he watched her bathe. He didn't bounce his eyes away. He lacked self-control. Satan tempted him. He didn't stay out in public. He brought her into the backseat of his car when it was dark out. So it was game over. Now, Christ is not like David. He has given himself fully to us, a faithful husband. The main message of the Bible is that together we are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and we should be in healthy and intimate relationship with him and only him. Jesus is fully dedicated to his bride, and this is how it needs to be for men who are married. We need to bounce our eyes off of anyone other than our wife. When it comes to your wife's body, though, gaze intently, maybe even with the lights on. Now, I know it's not the easiest thing to get married, 
Any person here could probably convince a million people in this world to marry them. But getting married, staying married, and building that extraordinary marriage, it's not easy. Now, there are almost a half a million single women under 40 in, in the city than single men under 40. Finding a good man today is like going to that blowout sale at Bloomingdale's in the last hour. It's a big mess. All the good shoes are gone. No good values left. And whatever's left, it's either broken or out of fashion or it will pinch your feet until you're dead. Now, the quality of your prospects go from drought to famine to near extinction. Okay, I get that. And this starts when men are still in their early 20s, you know, when they have that sketchy entry-level job and that funky-smelling apartment. Um, But, you know, for men in New York, even though it's easier to meet women, uh, getting married has never been riskier. The way our laws have evolved, uh, a man can have half of his earnings for the rest of his life taken away by an unfaithful wife. And I'm not saying that these laws are necessarily bad. They have just shifted more risk to men. And if a man wants to marry, a man really wants to marry someone he can trust. And here's why. Because if a man can't trust his wife, he may end up raising another man's child without knowing it. Some estimates range that up to 1 in 20 children are in this situation. And so, you know, women do have plenty of risk to deal with, yes. But, but so do men. Still, if you are wired by God for sex, you should get married. Don't burn. Take a smart risk with someone. Now, I haven't dated for a long time, um, since the 90s, really the 80s. Um, But I remember dating being difficult, uh, with more feelings of loss than success or redemption. You know, it was discouraging. It was frustrating. It was exhausting. And I encourage those of you who are in this season of life in the land in between single and married to remember one of the lessons that James taught us uh, three weeks ago uh, in the life of Joseph. Don't get bitter. Get better. Okay? Now, there's this interesting test that Abraham's servant created when he went out to find a wife for Abraham's son. Abraham wouldn't allow Isaac to marry a local woman. So this was the the servant's most important mission of his life. And he asks God, Show me the right girl back in the land where Abraham was uh, brought up, that when I ask her for water, she will also draw for my camels, pulling up many heaven gallons of water from the well. So Rebecca actually does this, and she marries Isaac. Now imagine for a minute how rough and tan and muscular Rebecca was. You know? And she's actually similarly described to, to the woman in Song of Solomon. Uh, She says that I've worked on my family's vineyards so hard that I've neglected my own vineyards, meaning uh, I haven't had time, um, you know, for appointments at the salon. Uh, I'm out in the sun too much. Uh, But more importantly, think about the type of servants' hearts these women had, uh, how hospitable they were, how hard they worked. Imagine what kind of ministry leaders these women could be. Imagine what kind of mothers they would be. So men, they're out there. And I think this church has more than our share. So don't be passive like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Get out and date. 
And when I say date, I don't mean spend a lot of money or rush to that exclusive relationship. That should come later. Uh, I would call that courtship, where you're telling everyone, uh, I'm seriously considering marriage with this person. Uh, If sex is high on your bucket list, if it's your climbing Mount Everest, uh, why wait? Get moving. Why burn? Physical intimacy between husband and wife is healthy. It may be the healthiest activity they can engage in. So, I don't know if you know this, but regular and frequent intercourse provides a bunch of benefits. Um, It reduces stress. It boosts your immune system. Men can pass all these good chemicals to a woman that make them happy. And you know, the best thing you can do for your skin is to sleep deeply and secrete melatonin. And orgasms do that. Uh, It lowers your blood pressure and risk of heart attack. It lessens pain, your back pain, your leg pain, menstrual cramps, arthritis. It even lessens headaches. So if your spouse ever says to you, I have a headache, (laughs) you need to love them well and say, come here and let me help you with that. Okay, and this one's my favorite. Okay, it is effective cardiovascular exercise. For those of us who don't like to run or bike or swim, this might be the way to care for our bodies, which, as you all know, are temples to the Lord. Ross, how are you doing taking care of your body? Amen. That's great. So for you married people who aren't getting in the gym and want to keep your medical costs down, not to mention skin treatments, this is what you can do. And, you know, when you are regularly engaging with your life partner, your improved fitness actually makes you even more attractive to them. So it's a virtuous cycle. And for people in this cycle, the incidence of divorce is significantly lower. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.5 says that two spouses should be intimate as often as each would like. So whoever prefers the higher frequency, that should be the frequency. We may think that the opposite of faithfulness is adultery, and that would be correct. But 1 Corinthians suggests that a second opposite of faithfulness is deprivation. Don't deprive your spouse. Be generous to your spouse. And the same is true for Christ and the church. We need to be drawing close to Christ, the whole body constituted together. And we need to be doing that regularly and frequently. The Acts 2 church met every day. How is that for frequently? Okay, a lack of intimacy between Christ and the church is unhealthy, just as intimacy is healthy. And this is the same for a husband and wife, okay? Now, like an imperfect spouse, we, the church, we can be prone to deprive and to be tempted and to exhibit a lack of self-control. Here are the issues that we see in the letters to the seven churches in in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So Ephesus, she forsook her first love. I'm just not that into you anymore, okay? Pergamum was like Samson. She dabbles with pagans, these other partners, and that draws her away from Christ. Thyatira tolerated a false prophet leading to idolatry and satanic worship. Could she have disrespected Jesus anymore? Jesus deserves total respect, same as a husband. 
Sardis looked alive, but she was dead asleep. Jesus says to her, wake up. Kind of like Solomon telling his bride to wake up. And that started their fight that I told you about earlier. Um, Laodicea gets caught up in material things. And Jesus says to her, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. She loved her wealth, and Jesus calls her shameful. It reminds me of a woman who leaves her husband after he loses his job. These are all marriages without intimacy. Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. So if you have a spouse, your body belongs to him or her. And this is why sex doesn't work outside of marriage. Because you would be giving your body to someone to whom it does not belong. It is a devastating form of robbery. Stealing from your present or future husband or wife. Now, I know the culture, it doesn't really agree with any of this. It's hard for us to live life this way because sex is really important now. But school and career, all that should come before marriage. But look around you. The culture is on fire. The Bible suggests that it is better to marry at 19 than to burn until you're 49. And the science of fertility suggests the exact same thing. So the culture is going to tell you something different, but the culture will never live with regret. You know, that type of regret that comes from not saving yourself for your spouse and the unwelcome memories that come into your bed. Uh, The regret that comes from waiting too long to have children. God will forgive you for anything in your past, or me, if we confess. And a godly spouse is actually capable of a similar forgiveness. And you can even forgive yourself. But there are long-term consequences to the decisions that we make now in this area of our lives. So putting your spouse below someone else or something else is what kills intimacy. The same thing is true for Christ and the church. We can see from these letters to the seven churches that a husband or wife can be doing great things in the marriage. But if they don't put their spouse first and everything and everyone else second, the marriage is in trouble. If you are going to be married, then have an extraordinary marriage. My hope for our church is to improve our intimacy with Christ. Will we pursue him the way we heard Christy and John read? Will we become more attractive and more available to him? Recall what Elder Dave taught about Jonathan and David two Sundays ago. Instead of asking God for a friend like Jonathan, we need to ask ourselves, how can we be more like Jonathan? So remember, church, we are one body. It is not enough to say our personal relationship with Jesus is good. That is like saying I only need my ear to be intimate with my spouse or or my elbow. Okay, the whole body needs to be involved. All the parts must work together. It is that all-in concept, which Elder Fred talked about last week with Thomas. Now, it might sound like I'm talking about sex, but I'm actually speaking about Christ in the church. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for being before all things and for holding all things together. We thank you for leaving your throne to rescue us. You are incredible and awesome. We thank you for those of us here who are gifted to be single and can live more focused lives for you. We thank you that you make a way for those of us who can't be single without exploding. I pray for those of us who have lost our spouses 
that you will help us to grieve well, to be grateful for who we had, and to honor our spouses by mentoring other couples. For those of us who are married, I pray that your spirit will help us clean out the things in our hearts that kill intimacy. I pray for myself that you would help me to stop playing judge or victim or scorekeeper in my marriage. I pray for all the husbands here that we will see and appreciate the beauty of our wives every day, the wrinkles that represent everything they have done for us, the tears they have shed for us, the legs that our kids grabbed onto in learning to walk, and the breasts that nourished them. And I pray for those of us here who are not yet married, but we think we should be someday. Help us to move towards you and our future without delay. Help us as a church to see you better, to love you more, to respect you better today than we did yesterday. Find us faithful, Jesus. Find us beautiful. In your name we pray. Amen.